All right, well, come on back. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Raise your hand if you need a Bible. John will get you a Bible. If you have one, you're going to turn to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17 is what we're going to tackle today. We already tackled two weeks ago before Resurrection Day. We tackled chapter, chapter 17 verses 1 through 4. Isn't that funny? One through four. But uh, anyway, that's a big topic, forgiveness. And I want you to remember now, if you flip in your Bibles, go all the way back to chapter 14. And chapter 14 is Jesus has been invited over to a Pharisee's house on the Sabbath. They were watching him closely. You remember this? He's increasingly becoming a thorn in the side of the religious leaders who are following him through the travels that he has. They're going out to see him. And in fact, I mean, in chapter 19, it basically says that the religious leaders you want, want to destroy him. So he's agitating the religious leaders, but he's here, chapter 14, at a dinner And man, he talks to everyone, and that conversation continues. He talks to hosts and guests and passerbys and uh, uh, the religious leaders, and uh, just no one is spared his provocative, spiritually provocative speech. He's provoking people to spiritual conversations, and he continues to do so in chapter 17. That's what I'm trying to get at, but not very quickly. (laughs) And that's where we are, right? Here we up. There you go. Whoever said that has to go out now. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Just a joke now. Just a joke. So that's where we are. He's still speaking and and, uh, talking to the disciples about many of the different things that they're going to need to be equipped with because he's getting ready to leave them. And they're going to carry the message. And folks, as a follower of Jesus Christ, it's the best place to be. But in this world, it's a difficult place to be oftentimes. And there, back then, you know, of course, this was certainly true. Here, Israel is sort of coming to that place where they're getting near to the Passover celebration all their expectations and hopes of a exodus, so to speak, or, yes, an exodus, so to speak, out from under the thumb of the Roman oppression. Is everybody tracking with me? At the time of Jesus, Rome dominates the ancient world all around the Mediterranean, including Israel. And here... We're moving towards the Passover in the story of Christ, and they're expecting and hoping for and getting ramped up for Messiah. When will he come and, again, take them out from underneath Roman oppression? But as you'll see here, as they read the Old Testament and read the Scriptures, they didn't understand That Christ was coming the first time 
as an Isaiah 53 suffering servant. There must be a cross before the crown, as many say. Jesus coming a second time in the future. He is coming as the conquering king. And both of those sentiments or directions or principles are in the Old Testament. And as they move towards this Passover, they're getting excited to shake off an oppressor. And yet, that wasn't what God's plan was, as we know. (laughs) Semi-truck. And so we're about ready to embark upon some of the things that they have been talking about and asking and wondering about here in the 17th chapter. The first part of that chapter was forgiveness. Remember, Jesus, if you were here two weeks ago, Jesus is telling the disciples to stay on mission. There are going to be a lot of things that try to detract people from the mission of disciples or followers. Yeah, good. Sit up front. That's great. It's like dress well, test well. Sit up front, you get it 100, right? Debbie, you get 100. She's not scared. And so that's where we are. Jesus wants us to stay on mission. What is your mission? (laughs) Well, he tells us at the last paragraph of the book of Luke, We know our mission. It'll never change. There could be COVID. There can be catastrophes. There could be things in our lives that hurt, not good circumstantially, whatever. Our mission never changes. And it's in the last chapter. Our mission is this. Thus it was written, verse 46 of the last chapter, 24 of Luke, that Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remissions of sin sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at home, Jerusalem. And you are witness of these things. What does a witness do? A witness doesn't necessarily get up and have to win the case. That's a prosecutor. A witness stands up and says, I I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but truth, so help me God. What did you see? What did you hear? What happened to you? Witness. You You don't have to convince people. Yes, it's good to give a defense. The Bible tells us that. Be an apologist, of course. But remember, it's the Lord who does the saving. You just stand up and be a witness. And here he says, Hey, disciples, hey, followers, of which many of you are. Preach this repentance and remission of sins and start at home, right around you. And you're witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Thank goodness. He gives us the person and work of the Holy Spirit to come into our lives to empower us to do this because the road is hard. Okay, now turn back to 17. He's already told us 
that covetousness is going to derail your mission. He said that you're going to take the lowly place and to leave all to follow Christ and be salt in this world. Never lose your saltiness. He's told us all this. He's told us about heaven and hell, rich man and Lazarus in 16. And he's told us about forgiveness. And he said that these things are going to be the things of the kingdom, the things that you'll encounter so that you don't get off mission. When your feet hit the floor in the morning, are you thinking about repentance and remission of sins? Or are you thinking of building your kingdom? Are we thinking of the Lord's kingdom or our kingdom? Jesus is saying to his followers, you'll leave all to follow me, and part of it is not part of it. Your mission is to preach repentance and remission of sins right at home and then outward. And I don't want you to get off mission. That's what chapter 17 tells you. And he says this, reading in verse 5, after he's talked about forgiveness, giving and receiving forgiveness. He said this, didn't he? He says this, the apostles hear that message about forgiveness, man, and they're like all of us. It's so real. It's funny to me. Oh, by the way, time out. I have an announcement at the end of the service. He told me to do it, and I forgot. Remind me. It's about the blessing store. Don't let me leave here without saying that. But anyway, just like all of us, and the apostles said, uh-oh, forgiveness? Hmm. It's like, Help. Increase our faith. Who else would say, hold their hand up and say, yes? Oh, just two of us. Okay. You guys are saints, man. No, I'm kidding. More than, there was six that did it. But, and the apostles said to the Lord, the word of the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, now remember, Beck here oftentimes teaches IBS, inductive Bible study. And one of the first rules of inductive Bible study is context, context, context. The health and wealth preachers are going to bring you right to this and say, oh, if you have just a little bit of faith, you'll get anything you want. But it's context. They're talking about forgiveness, and they say, oh, yowza, give me more faith. And the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, You can say to this mulberry tree. Now, why does he pick mulberry tree? Because mulberry trees are infamous for growing deep roots, which means they're hard to root out. You get the why he's saying that? Because this is hard to root out. Forgiveness and unforgiveness, hard to root out. And he says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea. And it would obey you. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he think that servant, uh, because he did the things that were commanded him, uh, does he think that servant, because he did the things that were commanded him, uh, uh, thank, I said think, Sorry. I think not. So likewise, you, when you have done all these things which you are commanded, say, we, ready? 
We are in profitable servants. Now, don't you just love waking up in the morning saying, you know what I am, an unprofitable servant, right? No one says that. Nobody says that. And yet, that's what Jesus calls us here. We are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Well, that was the long-winded introduction, but let's pray before we unpack this. Lord, help us to do this. We need your help uh, because uh, there are some things in here that maybe at first glance we not understand, but by your Spirit, Lord, help us to understand what you'd want us to hear, what the text says. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, you got to remember something. Jesus has already discussed in Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 38. He had said to his servants, listen to this, he had already promised them, servants, that if they were faithful or as they were faithful, he would come and serve them. Are you catching me? Just go back and read it. He says to his servants, I'm going to serve you as you're our faithful steward. But here, it seems as if he's switching course, but he's not. Remember, they're going to be in this place, disciples, where they're going to witness lots of people coming to see the Lord, coming to know the Lord, putting their faith in the Lord, and those sorts of things. And they're going to see lots of things that the Lord does, power, and Holy Spirit power. We know that because we see the rest of the story there in the book of Acts. There's this temptation as close followers of the Lord to sort of get big-headed and to want to be congratulated and paid back for all the stuff that they're doing for the Lord. That would be an immense temptation if you were part of the 12, part of the people who followed Jesus more than the 12. And could you imagine if you were part of those inner three who were always invited to go deeper and more intimate with the Lord? There would be this temptation in our humanness to sort of swell a little bit. And Jesus reminds us, but if you'll unpack it, it seems cruel, but it's not harsh or cruel. And he reminds us this. If you have faith as a mustard seed, now the first thing I just want you to, to, to remember, and this is kind of a side trail before I get to uh, uh, why he's saying that we're unprofitable servants, I want you to remember this. Jesus seems to be saying here in the context, you folks always want to concentrate on your faith. How am I doing Is my faith growing? And yes, there's some indication in the scriptures that our faith uh, 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 builds layers or there's layers. But see, in our American culture, it's all about our faith. And and, and what it promotes is this. For instance, I kind of use this example a lot. It promotes things like this. You know, I've been to more Bible studies than he has during the year. I notice he only comes half the time and I come almost all the time, and wow, my faith is getting really better. Come on, folks. People have said this. Or, you know, she never serves on the committee, or she never sets up the chairs, or she never here to help hide the coconut donuts. She's never here for any of that, but I am. But I am here. My faith is growing by leaps and bounds. But what Jesus is doing here, if you'll look closely, is he's telling you, 
It's not about the quantity of your faith. It's about the quality of your faith. What do I mean? See, you know that, um, you know that uh, thing on social media that says something like this, tell me that you're married without saying you're married, or tell me that you're whatever without saying you're what. See, that's what Jesus is doing right here. He's saying to us, oh, don't concentrate on your faith. Concentrate, concentrate on the object of your faith, which is God himself. If you recognize and stand in the promises of God, even with this little faith, mustard seed, mulberry trees will be ripped out, including in the area of unforgiveness. Why is he saying all this? Not so you can have a Lexus or a big house or cruise around and have no problems, as some people teach. Not that at all. He's saying, I want you to stay on mission. And so when you get to the places, even in unforgiveness or covetousness or gossip or, other those, or any other things, or people come against you in circumstances that seem dark and hard, yes, have faith. Of course, have faith. But remember, it's the object of your faith that's important. It's who you have faith in. It's not my faith. That's a really subtle thing, but it's a huge thing. What happens sometimes when we teach that it's all about our faith? What happens when somebody dies you've been praying for or close to you or they get sick or they get, lose their job or something happens to them and people come and say, but you don't have enough faith. Ah. As if something's wrong with you, and then the onus is on you. But see, this is the Lord, and as we've been learning in the book of Esther, God doesn't author the evil that men do, but in the circumstances that are created by men, God is there, and he's orchestrating all things and working them out for good. It's not about how much we have, it's how big he is. Do you see that? So let's not take this verse out of context anymore. Let's see how big God is. He says, if you have faith, they'll be pulled up by the roots and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep? By the way, I think Jesus is giving us a little hint of what we should be doing as servants. You know what the Bible says, right? For those who take up their cross daily... In fact, over in uh, the last of this church, or last of this chapter, verse 33, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. This is about, listen, putting your whole life on the line for the mission. <laughs> Come on, folks. Raise your hand if you've put everything out on the line for the mission, and the answer is, it ain't happening yet. And yet he's saying, the mission, the mission, the mission. You're going to lay your life out for the mission. And that means that you're going to serve and plow and tend sheep. I don't know if you know this, but plowing 
Remember those things? My mom had one of those antiques, those old plows with the wheel in the front and the things that digged in the back. And if you tried it, you're like, oh my, you can't even get one inch, right? And I know they were attached to, to, to livestock, but right, that was hard work. And folks, I've never tended sheep, but I have tended sheep and it's hard work. <laughs> and what he's saying here is, if you'll lose your life for my cause, you'll be working hard at it. It won't just be something you do on a Sunday afternoon before you go and watch the Steelers. It won't be something you just check in at. This is a lifestyle of losing your life because the Holy Spirit lives in you. I think the greatest verse, oh, there's lots of them, that tells us and reminds us about these principles, about working hard and and, and working hard in the Spirit is right there at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He's speaking about glorifying God in your body and in your spirit, Paul is. But he reminds you, and he's talking about sexual immorality and not linking up with harlots, of course. But, but then he says something that applies to everything, not just sexual immorality, but everything, and it starts in verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you if you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. The person and work of the Holy Spirit lives in you, no longer in a temple or a house, but you are the temple. Isn't that exciting? You've exchanged your life for his. But listen, folks who is in you, whom you have from God. And I want, I want you to write this down. Just write it on your notes or something. I am not my own. If we would remember that, there would be such greater freedom. I'm not my own. Why am I not my own? For you, we, us, were bought at a price. What was the price? The life of Jesus Christ. The life and death of Jesus Christ. Therefore, what do you do in response to the fact that Jesus died for us? What do you do? Glorify God in your body and in your spirits, which are God's. He owns you. He's, you you're in him and he's in you. Isn't that beautiful? You were bought with a price. Your life is no longer your own. That's the message of the gospel. In America, we say, eh, I don't know. Maybe I can be the butt. Or maybe, Lord, you could be my butler. I don't know about being your servant, but maybe you could be my butler. You could be in the house with me, but I want to order you around. I want, you to tell, I want to tell you what I want, what I need, what I need to have, the shoes I need to wear, the cars I need to drive, the houses I need to live in. I, let me tell you, that's how America does it, but the Bible doesn't describe that. The Bible's radical. God's word is radical. God says, no, you're his, which means... Going back to Luke 17, he writes to us and says, Which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, Hey, come in once and sit down, but will he not rather say to me or say to him, Well, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink. You say, How is this even relevant to my life? Well, I see it all the time in the church. I see people getting angry with God. They won't say it. 
but they say it. Hey, there's a theme. It's this. Man, God, I've done so much for you. They don't, they don't articulate it all the time. I mean, I've fed people over and over again, and you're not doing what I ask. Lord, I've been to the homeless ministry two years now, and you're not doing what I asked. Or, you know, you've been the, I've been the pastor, Lord, and this isn't happening, or that isn't happening. We treat him like a butler. And here, the Lord's saying, wait a second, before you get a great big head, it would be my duty, even after you've done all that you're required to do in the Christian life, to just ask you to continue to serve. Because what do I have or why do I need to give you thanks? Now remember, earlier in this book, he said, I'm going to serve you if you're faithful. And yet here, he said, why would I thank you? Why would the, the master thank the servant? They're just doing what they're supposed to always be doing. He says, so likewise, you have done all those things which you're commanded. You just say to yourselves, we're unprofitable servants. We have done what is our duty to do. Now, I want you to think about something. This is pretty fascinating if you unpack it. They've asked to increase our faith. He said, wait, wait a second. It's not about the quantity of my faith. It's about the quality of my faith. Who have I placed my faith in? Okay, we got that. File that away. But here's something you may have missed here in this story. How does God relate to us? Somebody yell it out. He relates to us in grace. He just takes all that you'll ever need spiritually, and he just puts it out there and says, receive it. I'm piling upon you unmerited favor and grace. But we don't relate to God in our grace. We have no grace to give him. What do we have to bring to the Lord other than just our lives in response? We have nothing. We don't relate to the Lord in grace. So what he's telling you here is the one who pours out all the grace isn't the one who says thanks. It's the one who receives the grace that comes back and says thanks. No, no way would the Lord need to or have to respond to us in grace. Now, you say, oh, okay, well, that's pretty cool. But listen, think about this. This encourages us in the area of faith. Why? Listen to what John Piper says about this. Here's why. Because it means that God, you ready for this? It means that God is just as free to bless us before we get our act together as he is after we get our act together. Did you catch that? He's free to bless us before we get our act together as much as after we get our act together, if we ever do, since we are unworthy slaves before we have done what we should and unworthy slaves afterwards as well. Did you catch that? 
We're unworthy before we do our work, and we're still unworthy because we don't relate to him in grace. It's only grace that would prompt God to help us. Therefore, he's free to help us, look, before and after. Are you catching that? Man, if you're catching that, you talk about freedom. This is a great incentive. It helps us from getting this spiritually big head. Man, I go to way more Bible studies than he does. I served and helped so many more people than they did. We got it wrong, folks. Even after I've done what the Lord has called me to do, I'm still an unprofitable servant. I can only trust and rely upon the grace of God, whether I've been a Christian for one year or one minute or 1,000 years. You getting it? That's how we come back to the Lord. How should our attitude be when we're serving? Remember this, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you're doing it as unto the Lord. If you're at work, unto the Lord. If you're washing dishes, unto the Lord. I say washing dishes, by the way. That's where Brother Lawrence discovered (laughs) how good and graceful God is. Whatever you're doing, it doesn't matter. Are you a a person who works for waste management and picks up garbage? That's worship. Are you a doctor or a surgeon? Worship. It doesn't matter. What is our heart? Everything we do, we do is unto the Lord. It's worship. All by... Thanksgiving. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5, we'll see it in a minute, do all things with thanksgiving. Wait a minute, you call me to clean the toilets? Hmm. Why didn't you call somebody else to do that? Or, or whatever, right? <laughs> do it as unto the Lord. It's freeing. It's freeing. You're as free after you're done to work you've done your work, to just receive from the Lord his grace. If the Lord did this one thing, folks, you ready for this? If he did this and nothing else for us, made the provision for salvation, and did nothing else, nothing, it would be more than enough. But the Bible tells us to thank him for all the benefits. Ephesians 1 and 2 says he gives us Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, all grace, all riches are available to us. But if he only gave us salvation, he'd keep us out of hell. We're unprofitable servants, folks. Well, why does he, you think he says that? Because it keeps people off mission. People get miffed. Well, the pastor and the elders didn't say thank you to me the other day. Well, we try to say thank you, but you know what? Sometimes we forget or it doesn't happen. Well, they didn't pat me on the back and said I did a good job. Well, we try. We're going to try. But what happens if we don't? We make a mistake. What happens? Would you still be satisfied? Could you still serve the Lord? That's what this is saying because people get miffed and they get off mission. Jesus knows it. And it's hard back then. It's hard now. Now, I mean, we might not get the donut we want on Sundays. Or we might not get the seat in the sanctuary that we've always had. They sat in my seat. Come on. These are things that ought not be so. We are unprofitable servants. And yet, the Bible tells us, 
as we do the things God calls us, calls us to do, he's going to serve us for eternity. Oh, yeah, yeah. It happened there in verse 11, as he went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. You know this, right? There's three sections to Israel at this time in the Bible. Galilee in the north, Samaria in the middle, uh, Judah in the south. So a rectangle, three, one-third, 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 basically. And Samaria was a, a people who had mixed with the Assyrians who had ripped the northern kingdoms out of their homeland. And so the Samarians hated the Jews, and the Jews hated the Samarians. And so he's, of course, of course Jesus would do this, right? He's coming through Samaria. (laughs) He doesn't shy away from enemies. He doesn't shy away from people who don't like him. He doesn't shy away from that political party or that political party. No, he loves them all. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off. Of course they stood afar off. You must know Leviticus 13 and 14, my favorite book. You're like, well, okay, where's Leviticus? It's in the Old Testament. You see, under the Mosaic law, God set up a procedure. Now catch this. Most people believe it's something that it really is. He set up a procedure for people who had been healed by leprosy to go and get ceremonially clean again by the priests so that they could enter back into life of worship among their people at the temple, right? Are you, everybody tracking with me? That's in Leviticus 13, Leviticus 14. There were some sacrifices that had to happen. And then guess what had, had to happen for seven days? The priest had to observe them and to just make sure they actually were healed. Isn't that fascinating? Now listen to what I'm about ready to say because I always get challenged on this and I was appropriately challenged on Wednesday night because I said it wrong. But tonight, I'm not, or today, I'm not going to say it wrong. From the time of the Mosaic law in which it was completed, it was set forth, there's no record, catch this, of any Jew or Jewish person who had been healed of leprosy in the Bible. Everybody's going, uh-oh, what about Miriam? That was before the Mosaic law. Catch me? Oh, what about Naaman? The, uh, Naaman was he- healed, but he was a Syrian Gentile. So is everybody catch, following along with me? Nobody's ever been healed of leprosy. You have this provision in the law all those years ago, Leviticus 13, 14, but it's never happened. And it was said among the rabbis of the time. Listen, the rabbis of the time had this. They had a category of miracles, and they called those kind of the common miracles, the rabbis did, that said if you were, if the Spirit of God would come upon you, anybody could perform those miracles. But there were a set that the rabbis taught of miracles that could only be performed by the Messiah. And guess what one of them was? Healing of leprosy. 
Now just stay with me here. It's just got a point. So you see it as I set this up or as we talk about this? You got Jesus purposely coming through Samaria. And no coincidence, he goes to some village and there are 10 men there who are lepers. We'll learn that one of them, the one who gets healed of all things, is a Samaritan, an enemy of the people of God. And they lifted up their voice and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. All 10 say, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, listen, isn't this fascinating? Go show yourselves to the priests. What's he referring to? I already told you, Leviticus 13 and 14. He's, he, Jesus knows the law. And he's like, hey, go show yourselves to the priests. Now, I want you to remember something. This group of people, these religious leaders, you're, gonna, you're seeing it all throughout the Bible. They're beginning to hate him. Want to destroy him, Luke 19. But he still pursued them. And here's how he pursued them. He says, can you imagine, under Jewish law, if you wanted to testify in court about something, you needed two witnesses. He sends ten to the priests. And they're not healed yet. He says, go show yourselves to the priests. Do what Leviticus 13 and 14, they must have been going, um, look at us. We're standing afar off. We're bleeding and sore and pus is oozing out. Go show ourselves to the priest. But I want you to catch something. As soon as they moved towards the priest, healed, that tells us something about faith. Again, it's not about your faith. It's about obeying the one whom we have faith in. A lot of people will put little note cards up on their refrigerator, you know, put it up on Instagram that they're in this amazing scripture memorization program. But then it comes to something hard. And they don't stand on the promises of God. Here, he says, go show yourselves to the priests. They must have been going, what? And so it was as they went, boom, they were cleansed. It's when the beauty happens. It's when the Lord does his stuff, man, is when we obey. It's not when we just know and consume. It's when we obey. And here he does it. They were cleansed. But one of them, just one. Such human nature. You see, we have a whole church in the Western world that love the gifts more than they love the giver. They're satisfied because they got what they want. Of course they got what they want. So they went off to show the priests, but this one recognized this is from God. How do I know? Because he returns and with a loud voice as he falls on his face before Jesus, it says in the Greek here, he screams it. He's not just a loud voice. He's screaming, God be glorified. In other words, you're the one. You're the Messiah. God be glorified. He fell at his feet and he gave him thanks. 
And of course, Luke puts this in here. Luke's the messenger for the universal gospel. Everyone comes, can come. He was a Samaritan. The Bible's, or the gospel is open to us all. Rich, poor, that side of the tracks, this side of the track, that color, this color, economic status, no economic status, image and power, no image and power. We're all one in Christ. So Jesus answered and said, well, weren't there 10 cleansed? Were there not 10 cleansed? A rhetorical question to elicit an answer. But where are the nine? I just want you to notice something. <laughs> the Bible calls us in several places. I mentioned it, 1 Thessalonians 5. You know what one of the will of God, what the will of God is for your life? To rejoice always, pray without ceasing, this is 1 Thessalonians 5, folks. And in everything, everything now, everything, give thanks. Jesus pays attention to our lack of gratitude. <laughs> Are you catching that? He notices when there's a lack of gratitude. Oh, is that convicting. Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except the foreigner? And he said to him, I want you to catch it. Don't miss the end of the story. Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you, and that word is not just well, it's whole. In other words, this one is the one who surrendered his life to the Messiah. There's tons of people in the world who want to be in the church and receive the gifts that God gives, but they don't want to bow down to the one who's the giver. Only one of the nine came back and fell down. There's people all over that seek out the gifts, and yet not him. Well, they go on. Remember, we're, he's trying to keep us on mission. He talks to us about, in this chapter, don't get hung up in unforgiveness. Don't get hung up if you feel like you've been slighted. Why would you be slighted? The grace of God is how I relate to you. I'm the one you should be saying thanks to, not vice versa, and yet I will serve you. Don't get jammed up on that sort of thing. If the pastor doesn't pat you on the back, he's not trying to slight you. He might have just forgotten do it as unto the Lord, and that will keep you on mission. And then another thing is, remember, you've been healed and made whole by the gospel. The Bible tells us, shows us in many places that leprosy is a picture of sin. Jesus is using this example but real story on purpose. There's something more important than your healing physically, and that's your healing spiritually. Do we love miracles around here? Oh, yeah. Praise the Lord when somebody gets healed. But the, here's the deal. It doesn't always happen. You say, well, you don't have a, a, a big enough faith. Well, remember, Jesus is saying here, it's not about your faith. It's about the object of your faith. Do miracles happen? Of course. But the greatest evangelist of all time, do you think he had faith? And he prayed and he prayed and he prayed for a physical ailment and he was never healed. And the Lord said, I just want my grace to be sufficient for you. Yeah. 
Can you get to the place where that is enough? God bless you. Well, he goes on. How else are you going to get jammed up? Well, you might be expecting one thing and your expectations are blown apart. Anybody ever had that happen to them? And then what happens? You get discouraged and frustrated and you're like, Lord, da-da-da. And see, many of these people, as we started this teaching, are expecting the Lord to remove the Romans. So, of course, the question comes, okay, 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 enough of this, Jesus, they say. We got a question for you, verse 20, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Now, the Pharisees, as we've talked on a, lo- a lot about, are ultra-Orthodox, very strict, and they want to know about this coming kingdom But don't get too mad at them here. That was their job to debate these things and to know these things. And so they asked the question, Lord, we're tired of these people not allowing us to practice our religion as we want. When is the kingdom of God coming? And he answered and said this, the kingdom of God doesn't come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed, The kingdom of God is within you. Now, this ain't new age stuff, folks. Jesus ain't new age. You don't have your own power that you're going to realize. No, the Bible tells us we're deceptively wicked. Who could know our hearts? All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. There's none of us who've done righteous things. No, not one. The Bible tells us that. We're clear. So what's Jesus telling us here? He's saying the the word he uses for observation there is a word that's searching eyes or examining eyes or you're trying to figure it out by the things that you can see. Hang in there now. And it's this. The kingdom of God doesn't come with outward, observable, external things that you're going to be able to examine. Why is that? Because the kingdom of God is within you. Now, theologians have, debate, have been debating within you since the Bible was written. What does within you mean? Well, it could mean a couple things. I think it means at least two things. The kingdom of God springs up in our hearts, inside, in our hearts. The Lord speaks to us. He shows us his word. The Holy Spirit comes, convicts, and we repent and turn towards God. That's inside. And we're made new spiritually, not better. That's a revolution. Are you catching this? It's a revolution that happens in a person's heart. That's where the kingdom of God resides currently. And he's trying to tell them I understand what you're thinking about Rome, but you're missing it. There has to be a revolution in people's hearts by my blood. He's going to say it here in a minute. That's going to be within you. That's going to spring up out of people. It also could mean in your midst. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're looking for everything out there, and here I stand right here in your midst, and you're missing me. When would the kingdom of God come? Where is the kingdom of God? Where is the kingdom of God? Wherever Christ rules and reigns. 
Does he rule and reign in your heart? There you go. Is the Lord coming back and going to set up a literal kingdom? Yes. But currently, he's ruling and reigning in the hearts of his bride, his church. That's us. He goes on, and notice, he shifts his attention. He shifts his speaking. He's not talking now to the religious leaders. He then shifts over to the disciples, his followers, and he says this. The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you won't see it. Parenthetically, Son of Man is a messianic title from Daniel 9. He's calling himself the Messiah here to people who know the Old Testament. So he says, days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the sons of men. Notice days is plural. And you won't see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Don't go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. Sounds like America, right? But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. (laughs) I think this is the second shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept being first. I think this is the second one. Remember Lot's wife. Everybody say it. What did she do? She looked behind, didn't she? The pole of her former life was too much for her. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken, the other will be left. Two women will be grinding the meal, the the corn together, and the one will be taken, and the other left. Two men will be in the field, the one will be taken, and the other left. And they answered and said to him, (laughs) so funny, where, Lord? What? Their head's spinning now. What? Where? Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. So the first thing I would say about this uh, difficult and challenging piece and portion of Scripture is this. If you're looking for a chronology of end-time events, that ain't this. Jesus is uh, uh, addressing something specific. Remember, context, context, context. And here's what he's addressing. If the Jewish folks and the disciples believe that Jesus is coming back to wipe out Roman oppression, then his coming back would certainly be one of joyous celebration, party, happy, blessed. But we know when Jesus came the first time, He was born in a manger, the first advent. 
He came with all grace and mercy, didn't he? And the Bible tells us, let me just tell you what I'm going to do right here. I'm going to give you a chronological events or a chronological time frame of the last days. You ready for it? But this isn't for that purpose. This piece of scripture that refers to the last day events is trying to alter an attitude. And that attitude or that thing is that when Jesus comes the first time or the Messiah comes the first time, he's going to make everything correct. The first time that he comes, he tells us he has to die. But the second time that he comes in his second coming, he is going to judge and it ain't going to be a happy time. So let me give you a real quick end time events. We live in the church age. Some have even said in act, like Acts 2.17, if you want to write this down, I'm just going to go fast. We live in the last days, Acts 2.17, the last days. What's that? The church age, the time between Jesus' ascension, okay, and the time which we, within which what we believe here is the rapture. At any point in time during the church age, there's no more prophecies that need to be fulfilled. Jesus, you could read it in 1 Thessalonians 4, at any point, brings his church up and meets them in the clouds. That's the rapture. What happens at the rapture time? Well, what that begins a seven-year period of tribulation. You could read about that in Revelation 6.19, and for the last six months or so, uh, just very recently, we went through that entire book. It's called uh, the 70th week of Daniel, or in Daniel, it's called the 70th week. It's a seven-year period of tribulation. It's called in Jeremiah the time of Jacob's trouble. What happens during the seven-year period of time called the tribulation? God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world and, as I like to say, does business with Israel. Israel going to come to recognize that he is and always has been the Messiah. That's the tribulation. What happens at the end? By the way, tons of things happen inside of the tribulation. I'm not going to go into them today. What happens at the end of the tribulation period? Jesus Christ, it tells us in Jude, comes back with 10,000s of his saints. That just means every, all of his saints. It says in um, uh, Revelation 19 that he comes back with his army. He's riding a white horse. You'll be riding a horse. Don't worry if you can't ride a horse. I'm sure he'll give us lessons. He's coming back to the earth. He's coming. During that seven-year period, there's all kinds of judgments being poured out on those who refuse to believe. It's not a great happy time. The Bible even tells us that there's going to be, various people think these happen at various times, but Jesus is going to judge non-believers. You could look that up in Matthew 25, 32. He's going to judge the living and the dead, 2 Timothy 4, 1. And he is going to judge the nations, Revelation 20, verse 4. All kinds of judgment happening. In fact, in Revelation 20, 11, you see the judgment of unbelievers. It's called the great white throne judgment. God perfectly judges unbelievers. He says, oh, you didn't trust in the blood of Christ. He wouldn't say it like I'd say it, like a smart aleck. 
He says, oh, you didn't trust in the blood of Christ. Okay, we're going to have a perfectly fair hearing here. We're going to open up the books and judge you according to your works because that's what you chose. The problem is we've all fall short of the glory of God. We don't want to be at the great white throne judgment. I want nobody in here to be at the great white throne judgment. Nobody. But these are judgments. And so that is sort of, oh, sorry. So second coming, he's doing all these judgments. The battle of Armageddon happens. If you've never been here for a revelation study, some people believe the battle of Armageddon happens in one place, Tel Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo. Certainly it's going to happen there, but there is some suggestion that it's going to start in Basra, in Jordan, and it's going to happen at the Kidron Valley in Jerusalem, right by the temple, and it's also going to happen in the uh, Valley of Jezreel up there, So it's like a whole campaign, and it's bloody. And Jesus defeats the enemies. So you're getting my point here? The point I'm trying to make by telling you all of this is that Jesus is trying to correct their perception of what happens the first time that Jesus comes versus what happens the second time that Jesus comes, his second coming. By the way, after this, After Jesus comes back, what does he do? He sets up a kingdom on heaven called the 1,000-year millennial reign where he rules and reigns from Jerusalem, and you're going to participate with real live bodies, not Casper the ghost bodies. And for a 1,000 years, he's going to rule and reign, and there's going to be some people that come in to the 1,000-year period who came out of the tribulation, and they're going to have kids, and they're going to have kids, and the reason I'm telling you that is they don't have their glorified, resurrected bodies yet, and yet at the end of this 1,000-year period, the Lord is going to set Satan loose again. Why would he do that? Because these people who've never surrendered their life to Christ are going to have to make a choice at the end of a thousand years, and then he's going to throw Satan and anybody who followed Satan into the lake of fire. The earth is going to dissolve, and there's the new heavens and the new earth, and that's where you're going to ultimately live forever with Jesus. That's the outline. But see, this ain't for that purpose, so don't get confused. Here's what he says. The days will come when you desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you won't see it. You should be jumping up and down at that one if you've surrendered your life to Christ. You don't want to be at the wrong judgments. And Jesus is saying, you won't be at some of these judgments. You catching it? And praise the Lord. Oh, by the way, rabbit trail, but not really a rabbit trail. You too will be judged. I too will be judged. But not on whether or not we're saved and get into heaven We'll be judged on the things that God gave us to do. Will we get a crown, this kind of crown, that kind of crown? And before you say, oh, that sounds competitive, and I'm going to be bragging that I got more crowns, or Mike says to me, I got more, no, 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 no. Because you're going to take the crowns and throw them at the feet of Christ. Not throw them, but put them down as worship. So it's not some weird, I beat you, you beat me thing. But don't you want to be a wise steward with what God's given you? If you're great at being a homemaker, for instance, the Bible says a gift is hospitality. Use your home for great hospitality, glorifying the Lord. If you're great at building things, I'm not. I can't build anything. 
But if you're great at building things, do it. Go help people. Just help them. Just, you don't want anything in return. Help them. And when they ask why you help, tell them it's in the name of Jesus Christ. Be a great steward, whatever God's blessed you with. Okay, now come back. We'll try and tackle this real fast. He says now, there are going to be people in the interim that's saying, oh, he's coming. Oh, he's there. Don't go after them or follow them. Here's why. Because the second coming of Jesus Christ, there ain't going to be any doubt. You aren't going to need somebody to tell you, oh, I think that was Jesus. In the second coming, when Jesus comes back to this earth, there'll be no doubt that it's Jesus. In fact, something's going to be happening where heaven shines, lightning flashes, and everybody on the earth will know that the Son of Man is coming in this day. Verse 24. But, he's telling the disciples, don't get too excited here, pals. First, I must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the Son of Man. As we move closer and closer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, time out again. Some people, when they say second coming of Jesus Christ, they mean everything from the rapture to the new heavens. Are you catching me? Sometimes when you use the word or the phrase second coming of Jesus Christ, you just mean coming at the end of the tribulation period. Are everybody tracking with me? So here, what uh, Jesus is telling his disciples is there's going to be these things where I must suffer, of course, the cross, but then as it was in the day of Noah, and he tells you what it was like in the days of Noah, so were the days of the Son of Man. As it gets closer to this time where I'm going to come back to the earth, there's going to be these things. There's eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, and no one's paying attention. Nobody's paying attention. Come on, folks. Don't you feel that in your own life? I feel it in my life, and I'm the pastor. And yet, if you go and talk to people, couldn't you say that there are very few people that are paying attention? And what happened to Noah? He got shot up in the ark, but everybody else perished. By the way, typology here. Many people believe Noah is a type or picture of the Jewish people who are going to be shut up, in a sense, in the tribulation and go through that wrath that's being poured down. Because remember, 144,000 Jews are going to be signed and sealed, you know, sealed. And they're going to preach to their Jewish friends. And the Bible tells us that all of Israel will be saved in Romans 11. So however that's worked out, a lot of people believe that's a picture of Israel. They ate, they're just not paying attention. Likewise, it's in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted. They're not paying attention. But on that day, all this wickedness is happening. Don't you feel like wickedness is just ramping up? Oh, my. I mean, anyway. And so on that day, Lot went out of Sodom, and it rained fire and brimstone. Even so, it will be the day, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is re revealed. Second coming. Now listen, many people use these next verses to talk about the rapture at the beginning of the tribulation. And some people believe that, and maybe that is. But other people believe that all of these scriptures are talking about the time when Jesus comes back and judges. 
It's going to separate people. Some people are going to be judged on the right side, the correct side, eternal life. Some not on the right side, not eternal life, or at least eternal life with the Lord. So keep that in mind as we read. He who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him come down to take them anyway. And the people who believe this is talking about the second coming and not the rapture say, if the rapture happens, you aren't going to go down the steps. (laughs) You'll be caught up in the cloud. What does 1 Corinthians 15 tell us? In the twinkling of an eye. How about this? And likewise, the one who's in the field, let him not turn back. See, in the rapture, you'll have no opportunity to turn back. You'll poop, twinkling of an eye, second coming, you start to see you're in the tribulation, you could turn back. Well, remember Lot's wife, don't turn back. Don't let the pull of the world and the things of the world stay on mission. What's most important? Could you ask, when, when when you wrote down, remember Lot's wife, You know what that ought to say to you? What's most important to me? Is it building my kingdom? Is it my relationships? Is it my hobbies? Is it my money? Is it my cars? Is it my houses? Is it my clothes? Is it my image? What is it? What's most important? Is it having kids or having married? What is it? What's my idol? Or is it the things of the Lord? Remember Lot's wife, don't be pulled by the world. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and ever, whoever loses his life will preserve it. You want, look, look, folks, do you want real life? I mean, real life, bubbling over, joyous, springing up out of water, always satisfied real life. Do you want that life? Or do you want anxious, worried, never satisfied, always disappointed, always discouraged life? Which do you want? Jesus said, if you'll hold on to your life, you'll be the latter. You'll be unsatisfied your whole life. But if you'll pour out your life like a drink offering, Paul said, if you'll just lay it all out there for my good and my glory, God says, it's the greatest and safest place to be, even though sometimes it's really uncomfortable because that's where real life is found. Man, we in America need a perspective change. We want to save everything about our lives. He says, lose your life and you're going to preserve it. You're going to have the best life. I'll tell No, don't get me started on that. But anyway, I'll tell you, in that night, there will be two men, one bed. There will be one taken, other will be left. There's this division away in judgment. Two women, they're making meals together. One left, one taken. Could that be the rapture? Maybe. Other people believe it's within the time that he comes to judge in his second coming. And they answered and said to him, well, where, Lord? Where? Where's this going to happen? This is pretty significant. And he says to them, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered. If you went over to Matthew 24, 28, it seems to say something like this. Just as the eagles gather at a corpse, so the lost are going to be gathered for judgment. But wait, wait, wait. I think he tells us what what he's referring to, and people debate this all the time. I think he tells us what he's referring to. 
or at least the, the writer, the Holy Spirit does. If you turn to Revelation 19, I think he gives us the answer. What's he talking about here? They say, where, Lord? Wherever the body is, there the eagles would be gathered together. Wait. And you go to Revelation 19. I'm going to read, starting at verse 11, it'll be a little bit long. Sorry. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. (laughs) His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a rope, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. This is Jesus, folks. And the armies in heaven, that's us, that's us, if we've surrendered our lives to Christ, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Here it comes. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather for the supper of the great God. I think what he's referring to in Luke 17 is the supper of the great God. Why do I think that? Because of what verse 18 and 19 say. That you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and, those, uh, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war, speaking of Armageddon, against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in the presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and here it comes, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. You see, Jesus is coming back, folks. Don't be deceived. Peter tells us there'll be scoffers in the last day. There might be people in here saying, come on, man. He said, Peter said, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the more they scoff, the more you know it's true. Because there's nothing more true here than the Word of God. He's coming back to set everything right, and he's going to punish the rebels. People who are in rebellion against him. You say, man, what a, what a lesson. Well, the Bible tells us in Titus and other places that this doctrine of his second coming, this doctrine right here, second, or Titus chapter 2, you don't have to go there, This doctrine of the second coming, you know what it does? It purifies the saints. Why does it purify the saints? Because the Bible asks us, Jesus asks us to watch and wait. Look up for your redemption is nigh. Be prepared. Don't be like Lot and Sodom. Oh, by the way, Lot's a picture of the church. But anyway, don't be like Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah, Noah and that. Don't be surprised at the generation. Be alert and watch for his coming. And while you're doing it, remember to stay on mission. When I read something like this, some people tell me, and they come up after and they go, man, I'm scared. I wish you wouldn't have preached that. You shouldn't be scared if you're in Christ. You'll be there participating and working. But here's the other thing it does. When you're here, 
don't you want to tell everybody you know? And everybody that hates you, don't you still want to tell them? And everybody that's not paying attention, don't you want to grab them? Not really grab them. Don't do that. You'll go to jail. And shake them and say, listen, and just pay attention, please. And don't you want to do one more thing? Don't you want to pray for them like crazy? Or do you want to just waste your life with hobbies and money and 401ks and building your kingdom? See, the choice is yours and mine. Let's pray. Oh, yeah. Let me pray, and I'll give you the announcement. Thank you. Lord, thank you so much for this word, and I just pray that you would uh, bless our hearts here and knit these things to our hearts, and then, Lord, give us the resource and strength by the work and person of the Holy Spirit to lay our lives down, pour it all out for your good and your glory. May we have zeal for your house and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Here's what I wanted to announce. If you want to be a part of the blessing store, we rented a a warehouse bay over here, a couple bays, where we can put furniture and gently used clothes, but only certain clothes, okay? And Mark and others can tell you what those are. I mean, we don't want everything, okay? We're not, just don't think of us as a drop-off center. We're not a drop-off center. But if you have, want to participate in that ministry, Mark's going to be here after and talk to you for about 10 minutes. We've already had a request in the community. This person has no couch. They're living in lawn chairs. No kitchen table or chairs and no floor lamp. And so, uh, you know, we get these requests every often and we're going to have that store and it's going to be open kind of from, not kind of, I just hesitate. This ain't Salvation Army. We don't have enough room for everybody to drop off everything. So you got to kind of make an appointment, tell Mark. I know I'm not being crabby about this. It's just we don't have enough room. There's no way. So if you want to be a part of that ministry in the name of Jesus, Mark's going to be up here, and he's going to tell you all about it, and uh, that's after this, and I'm sorry I forgot it. Now, I'm looking back there. Okay, he given me the no sign. Okay. Sorry, worship team. Sorry, people. Sing in your hearts as you go out. Here, I'll pick on somebody. Uh, Somebody to lead us in song as you go out. Somebody with a good voice. No, I'm kidding. All right. Let's pray. Or let's pray one more time. Lord, thank you for this, and thank you for all these people and their hearts to know you. And I just pray, Lord, as uh, we go about our day, you would uh, just be our all in all. Fill us to overflowing. Lord, to lay ourselves down like this is going to take supernatural something. And that supernatural something is you, Lord, in our lives, not our own self-effort. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.